So welcome to the uh, new sports podcast from the Adam Smith Institute. <laughs> we'll be ty- in talking entirely about the football from last night. Uh, <laughs> I, heard it's, I heard it's coming home, Daniel, isn't it? Yes, yes, quite it is. And it was uh, a lovely match to watch. Did you catch it yourself? I watched it, yeah, sure, certainly. I'm a, a Tottenham season, season ticket holder of Tottenham Hotspur. So um, I watch with interest, mostly to see how Harry Kane does. <laughs> he may be departing shortly, but yeah, no, no, football's been coming home for about 150 years. I haven't quite arrived at anything. <laughs> <laughs> I notice as, as a humble foreigner in this country, there is nothing more exciting than that brief period every couple of years when you can hear people screaming in the street randomly, it's coming home, up until, of course, a very depressing moment when it doesn't come home and everyone almost like a sad, sad ending. Well, you're very lucky, Matthew, in that for the first time in, what, 50-odd years it is now, it looks like it might actually finally be coming home. We're not guaranteed. Well, and uh, thank you very much for listening to this episode of Sportscast. Uh, Thank you for joining us. Welcome to the Pin Factory, the Adam Smith Institute's podcast. My name is Matthew Lash, I'm the head of research at the ASI. In this week's episode, I'm joined by my co-host and head of programs, Daniel Pryor, and Sir Ian Duncan-Smith, Member of Parliament and former Conservative leader. In this week's episode, we'll be discussing regulatory reform and the rise of a bullish China. The Task Force on Innovation, Growth and Regulatory Reform, TIGER, chaired by Ian Duncan-Smith and also including Teresa Villas and George Freeman, have released the Government Commission report on reimagining regulation in the UK after Brexit. In what was this task force trying to achieve? Well, the first thing is, I was interested, you called it Tiger. Actually, in fact, we all call it Tigger. <laughs> a tiger sounds cooler, though, if you just make up an E. Yeah, uh, well, uh, we all called it Tigger, and uh, Boris Johnson uh, loved the idea of Tigger, and so he was, an, he was reciting uh, the great uh, Winnie the Pooh Tigger lines at me when I handed it to him. Uh, <laughs> um, never that. But anyway, apart from that, I was asked by Boris Johnson uh, back at the really at the end of last year, <clears throat> sort of running into this year, to look at regulatory reform for him. That notwithstanding the fact that he's got a cabinet committee doing it, but he said, I'd like you to do that. And I said, I'd need resource to do that. And he agreed to that. And then he said, could you use these other two MPs as well? One was George Freeman, the other was Teresa Villiers. And that was fine. And so we carved it up into three areas. I did the philosophical piece at the front and then very much the financial services service sector. Teresa did the agriculture and manufacture. And George, who is a scientist himself, did all the medical and science bits. So those three areas are predominantly in it. And we took a decision not to do employment. And there was a reason for that, because I think employment is almost always the death knell of regulatory reform papers because they go straight to that, and then you just have a debate about are you slashing some workers, etc. And that sort of stuff anyway can be dealt with piecemeal by governments. What's required is a much bigger look at regulatory reform, and that's why we decided to do it on what affects business rather than directly anything to do with employment. And so we covered all those 100 recommendations in the end, which is we could have had a lot more, but we thought we had to limit it. Yeah, so so conceptually, you, you really try to dive first into what is regulation, what, what it's trying to achieve, a yeah. kind of a new model of regulation. So I think your key distinguishes between kind of what you perceive to be good regulation and, and bad regulation. Yes, that's of all the philosophical bit, which was the biggest surprise, I think, for government, 
because they hadn't hadn't uh, thought that we would do this. They thought we'd come up with a shopping list. But I said, there's no point in having a shopping list if you have no concept of what leaving the European Union allowed us to do and what we should do. So the first thing that I wanted to establish was that the thing that the UK has, I say the UK, even though this is essentially an originally English concept, but common law is a legal system, which in fact is the simply the most flexible and best legal system for civil uh, corporate affairs. And in that basis, it's flexible because it is, of course, iterative and judge-led, which means that you don't constantly have to refer to a statute. You don't have to come trailing back to change stuff in Parliament. You can modify it as new events occur or problems occur, etc. So the first thing is we need to make the regulatory process more flexible than it is at present. And one of the problems, of course, is the EU coded system is very inflexible. Uh, And it's inflexible. And then you add to it that there are, or were when we were there, 28 nations all modifying it in their own way before it gets to statute. It has to go into statute because otherwise it it would be different in every country. And so the result is they over-regulate because they use what's called the predominant precautionary principle, which means that you have to anticipate problems and then legislate for it. And my view is that now we're on our own again, we should revert back to a much older practice, which is if it isn't, uh, if you aren't told that this is wrong or it is it is illegal, then you assume that it is right and it is legal until we tell you that it is not. Whereas in Europe, it's the opposite way around. And so on that basis, I said this allows us to make it flexible. The second part of the recommendations in this this first section is that to make that happen, regulators have got to now use what we call the proportionality principle. So that means that you look at the overall reason for the regulation and you must examine the answer, the, the question, which is how proportionate is this to the nature of what you are seeking to achieve? And then in it, there should be an independent economic impact analysis of the regulation before the regulators actually implement it, and for that matter, legislators. And I say independent, it can't be done in-house because it would just be biased. And that then should guide you. So it should have as much, it should have as much um, force in the setting of the regulation as, say, the requirement or demand from the usual sources of politicians saying we have to do something about this. You need to counterbalance that. Well, you can, but the downside of that is that you will uh, wreck or trash a whole area of business. So the balance of risks is where you're trying to get back to again, whereas at the moment it's all about the risk and not about the balance. So the common law principle allows us to do that and allows the regulators, we could shift a lot of this onto the regulators, for them to use that iterative process just to tidy up around the edges. But the key issue, which is where we probably clash with government, is government needs to allow parliament to have a proper scrutiny process here, which is well financed, rather like the Treasury Select Committee. And it has it, its job is not just to look at what you can regulate, but its job is to test the regulators against their requirements. And did they actually get the balance right? And that was asked for as well by the Bank of England. So uh, most of this uh, is the first section and that's everything from that flows directly. Yeah, one of the things I really enjoyed while reading this is that often you do get when it comes to talking about deregulation, uh, a simple kind of shopping list approach, as you mentioned, where you just try and list out specifics of what needs to be changed and why without giving a background as to the kind of 
the system by which regulation comes about in the first place. And it's, it's good to see some emphasis on that. And when I was reading this, I was, I was wondering whether or not you think that that kind of recognition of actually the, the systems of how we create regulation being just as important as you know, specific regulations themselves. Is that something that you see as, as well acknowledged in the government in past years? Or do you think it is very much a case of politicians and civil servants just thinking, oh, we need to do something, let's pass this, rather than thinking about the wider way that we, we even consider new regulation? Uh, yeah, I do. I think the problem is that there is no underpinning so what we we what we did as a common law system, we ended up adopting the European coded system, and that's what made it made it peculiarly difficult for the UK because in the UK, the whole principle around law is that you you only pass laws, you only do these things where absolutely necessary. That was the old principle. You don't intervene on something if there isn't a particular powerful reason why you should do that and you must always balance it which is why as i say the initiative judge-led process is evidential it's always evidential as opposed to what i call the coded system which is anticipatory and the problem with anticipatory processes is that you end up literally taking no risks whatsoever and risk is how we live our lives and so uh, what i wanted to do was to remind everybody that the problem was for the uk is that we therefore as a result and this is an important point, we tend to be a a very law-abiding nation. And I don't mean that because we're better than anybody else. But it is the fact that people therefore trust the law and they will trust the regulations and therefore they tend to stick to them. I mean, you know, look at the way we behaved during COVID, probably more than any other country. Uh, They surprised everybody by sticking to the rules. And that's because once they think that it's necessary then they have trust and confidence in it. The problem we had is that because they were overcooked in the European system, notwithstanding that, people sticking to them uh, more than they do in Europe. So you've got lots of countries that kind of don't fully stick to this. That's not a rude comment. It's just the way the system works, which is they have these huge regulations, and then they kind of interpret them after that. The UK doesn't do that. UK has a law. It sticks to it. And that's where the problem lies. So now we need to get back to that system that says, okay, well, you've got that law abiding nature. Now what you need to do is make sure the laws themselves are not onerous, they're flexible. And therefore, when people stick to them, they can see the reason why. So so in my mind, the, the kind of regulatory burden is that more or less, each individual piece of regulation has, has some kind of sensible need or sensible demand, and, and it seems logical and rational. And, and then it is brought into place stacked in on legislation or secondary legislation with very little consideration of its cost or whatever the unintended consequences are. And I think your proportionality principle um, quite well, it's also sometimes described as a permissionless innovation principle, assume something should be legal and unless it's causing problems and then have a proportional response to it. Though then what happens, of course, is that the existing market players, you know, let's say the big banks, for example, they, they adapt to the regulations, they get used to them, they have huge regulatory departments that they can use to comply and more or less the, the regulations create barriers to entry. And so the, yep. there's, there's not that much that. demand Mm, you, you do. And there's not that much chance to cut regulations. And you, you kind of call for a big focus on making sure regulations are focused on smaller, medium-sized businesses and, and creating things like open banking and, and more sandboxing. 
what in my mind comes to, though first is, is the fact that just how difficult politically it is to try to get rid of problematic regulations that there's we've tried this before you know David Cameron had a big red tape challenge uh, I'm sure it did some good but it doesn't seem to have really pushed the edges that much do you have that much confidence that this time is is different that this government really does ha- care about it and, and is willing to let's say push back against the, the political headwinds that it can come when you do try to deregulate yeah, I mean, I think um, first and foremost, we do deal with the barrier. Uh, there is no question that that is one of the issues about the European Union is that the big companies that are already established lobby like mad for more regulation because it uh, limits the ability of other smaller entries into the arena. And you can just see that by looking at Brussels. It's surrounded by, you know, everybody from Google through to ICI all lobbying in their areas for regulations which ultimately shut out the smaller groups. So we were conscious of that. And so if you look at the GDPR recommendations, they're quite bold, actually. What we've said is they don't work. And what they do is they make it really difficult for smaller companies who do not have the sort of workforce that can do compliance the whole time. So this constant need for uh, very stiff compliance is very difficult. So we've said, basically, you should shift GDPR on the basis that you don't need half of what's being recommended at the moment. It's, you know, all this, you know, just look at what happens every time you enter something. Is it the issue, though, let's say with GDPR as an example, that then the tech companies will come in and say, well, no, we need interoperability with the EU. Uh, You know, that we could lose our our permissions there. This is not going to be good. And then you have the privacy groups will come in and say they're undermining online privacy. And the government just says, oh, we can't be bothered with this. Well, the answer is you change it completely. So what we now say is we want individuals to begin to own their data. So this is a big, big, big change uh, that we're proposing in here. In fact, we slightly toned it down because one of the three wasn't wasn't really keen that we went that far. I would have gone even further, but it's still there. And the principle is that we work towards the idea that individuals ultimately own their data. And in due course, what happened will happen is that therefore that helps so they transact that data. And that data, as you know, is the base of the dominance in California of the Googles and the Amazons, and well, not so much the Amazon perhaps, but cert- well, yes, yeah, certainly Amazon because they sell the data and Facebook. All these people make money off our data. So once you start to shift the balance of compliance, therefore, you start to change the nature of how GDPR works. And you have to then make it more flexible and far less onerous because we're working to the point where eventually I have this vision that as people get more ownership over their data, what actually happens is you will get organizations and companies setting up to negotiate that data with these companies. When people talk about how do you control the bigger companies, well, the answer is at the moment it's all one way, which is, you know, they pop up these products, you, you go and buy them, they glean your data, and then they flog it on. And that's really where their money comes from, not really from the sale of the things that they say they're selling you. So short of blockchains, the GDPR route in for individuals to begin to take ownership of their data means that you can relax much more of the GDPR rules. Of course, there's a requirement to protect, but we go way past that with the GDPR rules at the moment, and they limit development of companies. There are lots of other areas too, which allows big companies to shut out uh, others. One of the big areas is a recommendation that we make in there, which you may not think it is, but in allowing insurance companies to use their their capital to invest into much wider range of areas. At the moment, they're very limited. You would release hundreds of billions into investments in, say, infrastructure, but you also do something else. In America, one of the big reasons why so many companies, so many good ideas start in the UK, 
end up getting sold out and going to the States is because in the States, they have much greater access to capital to build their companies from the first, say, three or four year startup stage. And that's because their pension industry is allowed to invest. So there's a huge swathe of money there. Now, many in our pension industry want to be able to do this. This would benefit the smaller companies much more than the bigger companies if we allow them. Many in the biotech area, for example, we are leaders in this, but we need to get these businesses to grow into bigger companies here in the UK, not by going over to the States, uh, which is where they go at the moment. So all these things do shift towards the small and medium companies to try and get them moving. Yeah, the classic story with GD Power, of course, is that it very much consolidated the ad market into Google and Facebook within the EU because yeah. the other ad companies didn't have the permissions from users and therefore they couldn't compete with the same level of data. And it effectively was was quite good for the for the big tech companies. I'm also minded though we're kind of talking about existing regulations. There's also, I guess, a number of regulatory threats or issues the government is looking to create more regulation on. The the, the first and most prominent one that comes to my mind is the online safety bill that would put quite an extraordinary regulatory burden on social media sites of all sizes, uh, as well as uh, search engines, and potentially reduce competition quite substantially just because of all, all the kind of burdens that will come with that that bill that, that requires all these assessments about safety and all, all these moderation. Should we be focused on upcoming regulatory threats as much as we are on the kind of existing burdens? Yeah, well, that's exactly why we wrote this the way that we did. The first section is meant to be your test. What are you trying to achieve? Mm. And are you overachieving it? What is the business? What is the threat here? The threat is that there is all sorts of abuse and difficulties there. And they're not, you know, this is, for example, on many of the online sites, peculiar in the sense that if you publish a newspaper with something in it, you know that the publishers know they run the risk of being prosecuted, even though it was a quote from somebody else, they're just as guilty as the person they're quoting from. So they have to check and run that past their lawyers. That doesn't happen on the social media sites. This has always been one of the sticking points. So you've got a balance here. What are the freedoms to express opinions versus the intrusion onto people's own ability or reasons for privacy? But they need to ask that question, how proportionate is this with regards to what the real threat is? How big is that threat? Um, And Therefore, how do you want to control that? And if you over control it, then do you actually lose the point and purpose of what the internet is all about? But the proportionality principle is the way I would approach it to ask that simple set of questions. What are you going to do with this? How does it work after this? Or will you then just find people set up stuff in the in the black domain and start using it separately and you're back to square one again? So, so you know, this is another question of uh, are we running because it's become a media fixation? Or do we genuinely think there is a serious problem here? So we started this off talking about the kind of philosophical underpinnings behind regulatory reform and moved on to some of the specifics a little bit more now. And I'm interested to know if you have any one or two particular bugbears when it comes to certain regulations that stick out as just immediately should be for the chop. And for my money, and I see that my co-host Matthew has written in the podcast notes exactly the same bugbear for him is uh, around the UK doing human challenge trials for uh, for COVID as being a particularly interesting one in terms of regulation. And as someone who, who tends to be sceptical of, of certain arguments made by bioethicists in this sphere, I'm, I'm quite sympathetic to some of the human challenge trial arguments. And I think survey evidence shows that too. But But that's me. I'm interested to know what your kind of key ones that you'd go for the trial. Well, actually, funny enough, on that one, we do make a statement in there about needing to release 
data. And uh, this is all back to the ownership point of data, which is that it is absurd that you can't use existing data to look at areas that you need to work on. So, for example, you know, there's a whole swell of, of data that is, that is available in the health sector, and uh, it, it hugely holds back any development work if you can't use some of that. A lot of it is not directly applicable to individuals, but because it comes from individuals, a lot of the development area is just shut out because they can't use existing data to speed up the way they do it without impinging on individuals. So our argument is to look again at that process. This is, again, a GDPR problem, which means, therefore, that uh, you should have the flexibility, and if necessary, people should be asked. And if they say yes, then you can use their data at the moment. That doesn't work. They just can't use the data. So th- there are ways through that. And we, it's worth reading that section because we deal with that because there's a huge amount of the biotech world that will need to access this. Uh, there's a lot of bugbears, actually. And I, first of all, was very keen to start knocking down those stupidities that existed in the financial services sector. MIFID and solvency are just absurdities that are just reducing the capability to to do business. The other areas that I was very concerned about was that we needed to look at, again, for small companies, one of the big things that they all came and talked to us is that right now, all of their access to information, so much of the key areas are not digitized at all in the UK. So you just think about Companies House and all the other stuff. Big businesses have people that spend their time researching data on future clients and everything else because they've got the time to do it. Small startups who need to do that work, can't have someone spend their time physically going through records for hours and days checking stuff. But if it was properly digitized and we had the flexibility to do that, then all of that data, some of it which is personal data, could then be accessible (laughs) to uh, small and medium startups, which would, I think, have a huge effect on competition at the bottom end of the market. That was the one thing that all these startups kept saying to us is we cannot afford the time, which the big companies can, to go looking at a wider range of who they might partner up with or what the data on that is very difficult and slow to get. If all of those records were digitized straight away, we'd be in at the races and we'd be right up there with the bigger companies being able to sell our products. So those were two good areas. The other area, of course, is down in the biotech area. Huge changes we recommended in there because I think this is one of the big, big potential growth areas and is very held back by the regulatory process that exists in that. And I touched on it earlier on. So George was very keen on that area and he's made some very sweeping recommendations. I think the UK could could literally lead on this dramatically because we've got some of the smartest minds on this area in the UK. In fact, the USA spends their whole time searching for them in the UK and taking them over to the States. And what we want to do is build this here. And then in, in terms of uh, the Amazons and the Googles, you know, I'm, I've always expressed this view that I'm rather tired of being regulated and set by some large companies in California. I don't see why my life should be run by them. But I don't think the route forward is where the Europeans go with these taxation rules. It just doesn't work. Once you start increasing taxation, it just doesn't feasible. But my point about the, the hell point when I went back to the GDPR stuff is personal ownership is that actually very quickly what you start to do is to make it more viable for other organizations to operate in competition with them. And one of the areas that you need to look at is that these big organizations make an absolute daily requirement that they search through all the other companies involved in anything interesting and they buy them. So what you've got here is these big companies, mega companies, 
buy up anybody looking like they've got something which is interesting and quite often, more often not, shut it down. So once they buy it, they kill it. Anything that looks like it might be slightly competitive, they have a policy of buying up and shutting down. So if you want to look at this area, and it's very difficult, you started a company like that and you're struggling to get it going and somebody comes and offers you a chunk of money, you sell up. They're not interested in developing it with you. They just shut the thing down. And so the area to look at is not taxing the company so much as actually looking how they control the data, which I think is one of the bigger ways of breaking up the monopolies that exist in California at the moment. Well, on that note about all the, the positivities and, and areas for reform, time to move on to something that's perhaps a little bit more concerning, the rise of a more bullish China. Over the past year and longer than that, China has become a relentless focus in our politics from the origins of COVID-19 to the treatment of Uyghurs and Hong Kongers through to the geostrategic questions raised by things like the Belt and Road Initiative as well as things like the future of Taiwan. And I think just a general question to start here. How do you think the COVID-19 pandemic has changed the way that the world and also the UK tends to view China? I think the UK uh, has been at the sharp end of a complete misunderstanding about China now for some time. It was highly critical of the golden decade nonsense from George Osborne when it started. You know, it really is a, a naive assumption that was made early on that China's embraced to a degree of an open market, although that's a debatable uh, question as to whether they've ever actually fully embraced it. But nonetheless, their embracing of the, op- of the market, uh, the free market, would eventually feed through to change in the nature of their government. Well, that's been proven completely and utterly wrong by the arrival of President Xi. And actually now they've tightened up much more dictatorial even than they were under Deng Xiaoping. And they are literally throwing their weight around everywhere. And that's going to become a bigger feature. So first and foremost, a naive assumption in the free world was always that democracy, uh, the rule of law and human rights were natural human facets that were unstoppable. Uh, That is complete nonsense. They are things that have to be fought for because they're not that natural. What is quite natural is that incredibly strong and brutal leadership offers an alternative to them. And that's where China is right now. They're not just a problem to us economically and they're not just a problem to us uh, even militarily, as I believe they are growing to be. I think the big problem that runs inside that is they are an ideological challenge to us and they know it and that's what they believe. They believe that democracy is an aberration and that what the world will eventually settle back into is strong, non-democratic leadership, uh, which governs in the best interests of people who live in their countries, even if they don't recognize what those best interests are. Now, it's quite interesting that that is not recognized much or hasn't been by the free world. But there's an interesting little facet to that, which throws light on it. I noticed the other day that Imran Khan in Pakistan did the most pathetic thing I think I've heard him say, notwithstanding that he seems often to be lauded by the liberals in this country. But the reality is he came out with a statement which has hardly been reported. He said that he had looked carefully at what was going on, this, by the way, from a Muslim, uh, uh, in uh, Xinjiang amongst the Uyghurs. And he's read the data that has been presented by the Chinese government. And he now believes that the Chinese government is right. There is nothing happening there that is a problem. Then he went one stage further and he said, also, President Xi is interesting because he has made a case which is compelling or something along those lines. He said, which is that 
democracy isn't always the best way of planning your future, and that in in a way, non-democratic government can do a longer-term change and reform better, and this is something that is certainly interesting to him. Now, that is exactly what I'm saying, which is if you have enough money to throw at countries, and China does, one trillion now on their Belt and Road project, this is what happens to those you throw the money at, is that they they bend the knee and they nod in your direction and they say, do you know what? We're gonna we're gonna we're gonna go with these people. Meanwhile, the West just sleepwalking into this disaster, giving more money to China every day, by the way, by trade and by investment. So yeah, it's a problem. I think there was this this fascinating point at the start of the pandemic when it looked like China was a real success story. They'd managed to suppress the virus, it hadn't quite spread in the West just yet. And then uh, that early moment when China was trying to, you know, send shiploads, let's just say plane loads full of masks and, and doctors and medical officials or whatever. And I think in the end, people actually became quite cynical about it. They become quite cynical about China's PR attempts. And then China became increasingly defensive and aggressive. And we've seen that particularly around the kind of libel leak theory that, that's now under serious consideration in, in, in many parts of the West. And I think it kind of feeds back into the kind of narrative I've had around China. And I would put myself as someone who was relatively naive in, in the fact that I, I hoped in the, particularly around the 2000s and, and, and pre-Xi, that China would liberalize uh, along the political lines as it has along economic lines. And that was the kind of classic insight of Milton Friedman, that effectively those, those two things come together. Many things China has kind of tragically disproven that. And they're, they're very much known, particularly looking back probably since Tiananmen Square, that if they allow any kind of political liberalisation, even on, on the edges, that could lead to a kind of the fall of the Soviet Union situation and therefore they felt a need to clamp down. I do always wonder the extent, though, which is that if they're trying to clamp down on the information flows that it can be heard domestically and they're trying to be extremely censorious and extremely draconian, is that in some sense is a sign of weakness, that they don't really trust their own population to be on board with their agenda. Um, and I think in the West, we can be overly focused on this um, China rather than focusing on the CCP. And we actually know very little about what the Chinese people really think. I know we, we see bits and bobs on Weibo and, and whatever else, and there seems to be some quite strong nationalistic sentiment. But are the Chinese people really as on board with the CCP or is it just kind of impossible to know, I suppose, is the question always in my mind. Yeah, I think the, the the problem we face is that the Chinese Communist government has a very clear idea of where they want to be. They've already said that they will be the largest economy in the world. Um, I think that's within the next 10 years. And largest military is their ambition by about 2049. You're right about COVID in one sense. COVID has opened up the eyes of non-politicians uh, around the world, which is quite interesting, uh, to the nature of China much more. So if you scratch the surface of this, you'll find that there's a, a distinctly poor sense about China amongst just ordinary citizens, not in the UK, for example, because they see China linked to COVID. So that's been a disaster for them in terms of the the PR offensive that they were mounting before. The second thing about it is, though, that COVID illustrates the problem because China is a member of the WHO, but it's, all, it's absolutely certain that China knew about human-to-human transfer of COVID, probably really at the without question at the beginning of December, but there is some some view that they knew about this in November. They didn't tell the WHO anything about that. They played it down. And the WHO, with their 
placement in charge of it, which China actually <laughs> engineered, didn't ask any very deliberate or direct questions about what was going on, knowing that there was a some sort of epidemic taking place in the Wuhan area. China played it down, said it had it under control, it was not a problem. And it wasn't really, uh, partly because they wanted a trade deal with the USA, which was worth about a trillion dollars to them. And that had to be signed or agreed in the, on the 15th of December. And then they didn't say any more about this until mid to late January. Officially, they then told the WHO that they had an epidemic on their hands. And the WHO themselves didn't declare a global pandemic until the 11th of March. So what, what that showed is that if you have a regime like this, they are distinctly unreliable because their concern was that they didn't want to have any backlashes. So they had to hide this to show that it wasn't a problem in China. Of course, in that space, we all know Chinese workers went to Italy. Many work in the textile factories there and lots of Chinese students came to the UK and then it all spread from there and it's been a disaster. Now, the problem, therefore, is um, the way that they've reacted to that is as they will and have to, which is aggressively shutting that down in China. So you ask, what do the Chinese people think? Well, at the moment, they are not able really to express that at all. You saw what happened in Tiananmen Square. You're seeing now Hong Kong is a way of saying to the rest of China, this is coming in your direction if you so much as even blink on anything. And the control they have using technology is phenomenal now. It's on a scale that, uh, that the Nazis in Germany would have just wondered at. They can control down to household level. They know where you've gone. They know what you've purchased. They know how long you spent there. They know who you saw. They override uh, knowing where your card takes you. <clears throat> Their knowledge of who you are, where you are, what you do, what you spend, how you live your life is total in China. And technology does that for them, which is one of the great issues. However, I still think that the issue really is, as long as China is able to grow at over five and a half percent, then dissent internally is probably not that great. They have a middle class of about 400 million uh, and their incomes grow. So they don't get too enmeshed in politics. But if you imagine during COVID, their, their GDP fell for the first time below five and a half percent for well over a decade. That really worried them, which is why they opened up quite early and started getting this moving again. It's gone back up to between five and a half and eventually seven percent. But the key thing is that relies on Western investment massively. We send everything over there to produce. I mean, we're now going to go to electrical cars. And what have we got? Electrical cars all made in China. Batteries, mostly all made in China. Rare earth materials. 86% of mines around the world owned by China. Who produces all the rare earth materials, the manufacturing capability? That's China. I mean, everything we are about to do now in the pursuit for carbon neutral is pretty much owned by China. You know, Tesla. Oh, we all love our Tesla cars, don't we? Those who can afford them, of course. Uh, but where are they made? They're made in China. So my point about this is this is a thing of our making. So the West has got to wake up. It has the tools to put pressure on China. But look at the British government at the moment. It talks about all the problems, the terrible genocide. It won't use the word genocide, by the way. And the Uyghurs has even sanctioned a few people. In return, I got sanctioned. But the point then is, where do you go from here? And then the other bit of the government goes, oh, we've got to have a trade arrangement with China. We don't want to be too nasty to China. We need China. We need them for COP26. So China knows there's always an out because the West ultimately will always return to what's 
in their financial interests. That's how China works. Until governments wake up to the fact, and America is probably waking up to this, that this is a distinct threat on a scale which could eclipse what the Soviet Union was capable of, then when we do that, we'll start to understand we have to deal with it. And the way to deal with it right now is economic before it gets too difficult. But that time is running out. Well, let me be first off congratulate you on your your sanctions on this podcast because I think that's a badge of honor and you should uh, should wear it with great pride. On, I guess, the, the grand strategy scale, what is it that the West and the UK and, and allied countries should be trying to achieve when it comes to China? Are we trying to prevent them rising to their, their aim of a dominant power in, in economic or military terms? Do you think that there's still a way to try and bring them, albeit in the long term, into the rules-based international order? Or is there some other kind of long-term goal we should be working towards? I think while President Xi is there, I don't think there's a chance of moderation uh, at all. Uh, President Xi has basically taken over as a kind of dictator, really. I mean, he's now uh, president for life. He's made himself. You know, you can look at all the historical precedents for that. And so, you know, this bit is our single problem, is that he, you saw his speech the other day, I mean, bashing your heads against a wall of steel, bloody, or et cetera. Mm-hmm. These are not the, it's not the language of, a, of an individual that's looking for a more relaxed way out. That he's not interested in that. He has a fundamental belief that the West, the free world, is weak. And in a way, he's right, because he's proving that that is the case. And he thinks that the free world's domination for the last 200 years is an aberration in historical terms. He thinks that China and their natural state of being is kind of middle kingdom, essentially, that can dominate. And America well, it's a very weak nation in his book, and it is already in decline. There is some element that China understands that very clearly, and to what degree is America able to counter that? But the reality for therefore is that, that governments in the free world can only resolve this by coming together and agreeing the nature of the threat. Now, look at the British government. They produce a strategic review. They call Russia a threat, but China is not a threat in their book. And that's because they're still desperate not to upset the Chinese. (laughs) Here's a country that's killed Indian soldiers on the border, on border disputes with India, very aggressively. They've taken over the South China Seas, told by the UN they had no rights to it. They don't care. Uh, They have uh, trashed an international agreement on Hong Kong. They've made it clear that they will have Taiwan by force if necessary or by uh, peace. They don't mind. But their trashing of Hong Kong was all about saying to Taiwan, the game is up. We've given up now on uh, this, you know, one country, two systems. You're coming on board, whatever. And every day they now overfly Taiwan with military jets. Every day threatening Taiwan, which forces Taiwan to react, which costs them the earth. They know what's going on. So the problem, the difference is with the Soviet Union, we broke them in the end and won that Cold War because basically the free world was just economically so dominant and particularly with the United States, that they just couldn't compete. You know, they were spending 20% of GDP on weaponry and defense. Well, we were spending 4 and 5%. So you could see straight away it was heading for a disaster. The biggest threat, the reason why I think this is a bigger threat, China is about to have the largest economy in the world, the thing that the Soviet Union could never do. This gives them 
an incredibly potent position in every single institution. With the Belt and Road Project, they now get massive support worldwide from countries that they pay money to. And we've been watching all of this and doing nothing. Now we announce out an alternative to Belt and Road, but where's the money? You know, we do a lot of words. Deeds are much more difficult to spot. So so just thinking about um, China's position, and, and I am absolutely under um, no illusions about China's unethical behavior when it comes to Hong Kong or the fact that the world is almost kind of stepping by and, and watching as, as another genocide is going on is, is something that, that I think is something that we literally can't talk about enough. But I also think at the same time, I mind that there is a bit of a difficult trade-off here in the sense that it is it is also broadly a moral good that China has lifted hundreds of millions of people out of poverty over the last 30 or 40 years. I think that's a, a good story for humanity. We obviously get huge benefits from trading with China. And it, it seems like, as you've identified, there's not that much of an interest in necessarily getting rid of all trade with China. And that would make us much poorer as a result. What you're kind of leaning towards, I suppose, is an economic decoupling. I'm wondering, what do you see that in, in practical terms? Do you want us to stop trading with China altogether, to, to have no interaction with them uh, and, and let them fend on their own and, and do their own thing made in China, whatever? Do you want us, obviously, I don't think you really want us to continue a status quo. Is there some way in which perhaps we trade less on strategic issues and on non-strategic issues we and non-strategic goods or, or whatever else we continue trading with China? Or is it just all or, or nothing to you in terms of the kind of economic relationship with China? Well, I just think that the problem we face is we've dealt with this as individual countries, and none of which has the capacity or the potency to be able to settle this. My personal view is that we shouldn't be, uh, you, you say what's strategic and non-strategic. Here, to what degree is this strategic? Okay, we'll have a pandemic and then figure out how strategic that little hand sanitizer bottle is, because you couldn't get them at the beginning of the pandemic. Why? That would be because they were all made in China. How strategic uh, is PPE equipment? Not at all strategic, really, is it? It's just simple cloth and a mask and all the rest of it. Well, it's strategic when you can't get it and people start dying in your home country because it's all made in China and China controls where it goes when your need is great. So my point really is there is no separating of strategic from non-strategic because your problem is dependency is your problem in the West. We are utterly dependent on China, and that is a very dangerous place to be. And secondly, we don't make any qualification to that. China can behave as badly as it likes, it appears, and we still go racing to China to invest money and to do business and to buy plastic bottles from them, which we could easily manufacture back here. All of the new manufacturing techniques don't require very many people involved in them. You've seen it in car manufacture, etc., but certainly in these sort of thing, injection molding, they don't need vast numbers of people. But it's too easy to leave it over in China, where it's cheaper because where it requires labor, it's cheaper than the labor. The problem we've got is that the technology edge is being worn away dramatically, and that's dangerous. The one area that they've woken up to is in America, where they've taken back microprocessor work back to America, because there, America has about a 10 to 12 year lead on China. China is desperate to get that back, or that lead back, but now that America's taken it back, they took it back under Trump, but uh, Biden has stuck to that. These are key areas of strategic technology. But the truth is, the thing that we're talking on right now was made in China. 
the um, uh, the rare earth materials that powers this, which is basically, you can say, the oil of the 21st century, it's China has that, and they are making it for this machine. So when you get down to it, all of it's strategic, really. The problem we've got is that you have to link behavior with investment and with commerce. And we've chosen not to with China, but we would normally with many other countries, but we don't do it with China. And that's because we're scared stiff of upsetting them. Now, when a government has a policy that says we can't do something because we might upset them, well, that reminds me of the 1930s. If we're dealt with this burgeoning and dictatorial uh, organization in uh, Central Europe early on, we wouldn't have ended up with 60 million people dying. My problem is we are facing a similar organization. I'm not exaggerating. It has no time for human rights. It is committing genocide in a, in a number of areas, particularly in, in Xinjiang. It has no time for international treaties and trashes them. It's walked back into Hong Kong in a way that was out with the treaty that it arranged, and it threatens its neighbors on a daily basis. Look what they just said the other day. We have put sanctions on uh, Australian goods for no reason about breaking rules on competition, Surely for political, why? Because they said we want an inquiry into the outbreak of COVID. That is a country that doesn't obey international norms, rules, or anything else. My question is, how much more does China have to do for the free world to go, actually, this is a real threat to us? And of course, as we finish up, it's also worth mentioning that you are the co-chair of IPAC, which is bringing together politicians from, I think, across the political spectrum and from across the world as well in dealing with the challenges that are presented by the rise of China. But on that note, I think it's time to finish up for today's Pin Factory podcast from the Adam Smith Institute. You've been listening to myself, Daniel Pryor, the head of programs at the ASI, as well as my co-host, Matthew Lesh, and of course, our special guest for this episode, Sir Ian Duncan Smith, Member of Parliament and former Conservative leader. If you like what you've heard, then please do like and subscribe to us on your chosen podcast provider. And thanks again for listening with us. We'll see you next week for another Pin Factory podcast. Mm-hmm.